Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 64, Venice, Part 1. The other day I went for a bike ride. There is a lovely path that starts near the park just behind my house. It was a lovely autumn day. It had been raining on and off and everything was lush and green with the very first tinges of autumn colours. The path I took leads to a 16th century stately home called Il Mauriziano, home to Ludovico Ariosto, an Italian poet who wrote the epic poem Orlando Furioso. In the poem, in Canto 33, he writes Lor mostra presso un giovane pipino che con sua gente Par che tutto copra, e faccia con gran spesa e con lunga opra il ponte a malamocco, e che vicino giunga rialto e vi combatta sopra, poi fuggir sembra, e che i suoi lasci sotto l'acqua, che il ponte, il vento e il mar gli ha rotto. And so a young Pepin appeared who seemed with his people to cover all the land, from the Fornaci to the Palestine Lido, and with great expense and hard work made the bridge at Malamocco and came close to Rialto and fought there, then fled, it seems, leaving his men under the water since the wind and the sea had crushed his bridge. What on earth? was Ludovico Ariosto babbling about? Well, Venice. Particularly the moment in Venetian history that you could say marks the start of what we think of today as Venice, i.e. the area of Rialto and St. Mark's. Indeed, it was in the year 810, after the Venetians had resisted an attack by the Franks, that the seat of power and many Venetians were moved to the area mentioned. Having said this, we are sort of starting out around halfway through the story I wish to tell you in these episodes on Venice. So let's go back to the beginning. The area of Venice, both in the lagoon and more or less what is today dry land, was inhabited also before recorded history. Some think that those who settled there would have come from the Balkan area, Illyria, during the Roman period. Titus Livius, Livy for his English mates, claims that Venice was actually founded by refugees from Troy, with a certain Aquilo, founding Aquileia, which would make sense, and the great founder of Rome himself, Aeneas, also founding Venice. Busy man founding a lot of cities. The real influx of inhabitants came in the 5th century as the Western Roman Empire crumbled under the pressure of barbarian invasions. In particular, those of the Visigoths of Alaric, 
at the start of the century and later in the 450s with a famous invasion of Attila, when Aquileia was completely destroyed. Many would seek refuge in the protected islands of the lagoon, which were almost impenetrable to land armies with no boats. After the danger had passed, many would return to their homes, along the coast or on the mainland, but some would stay. According to one of the oldest sources we have for the history of Venice, the, the Chronicon Altinate, it was in this period that we have an official founding of the city, with a date and all, 25th of March, 421, in which a delegation was supposed to have come from Padova. Almost from the very start, Venice was characterized by a certain degree of autonomy. Not independence, mind you, but autonomy. That's one thing I really like about the historical Venetians, their practicality. Various kings and emperors could say that they ruled over Venice, and the inhabitants were quite happy to talk the talk, give lip service and go through all the necessary moves, just as long as they were left to do their own thing most of the time. As listeners of the podcast know, the Western Roman Empire fell in 476 when Odoacer deposed Romulus Augustulus. He, in turn, Odoacer, was killed by King Theodoric of the Ostrogoths in 493, and King Theodoric then ruled Italy until his death in 525. It is in a letter from one of his Roman ministers, Cassiodorus, to the Venetians that we get a clue to the position of the area. Indeed, in his letter, Cassiodorus is very careful not to impose or order anything, but to ask for the Venetians for help in transporting goods. This letter also shows that, very early on, Venetians had found their calling, trade. The area itself couldn't offer much aside from fish and salt, salt being a very important product, but still all they could offer. From the go, the business of Venice was salt and logistics. With evidence that already in the times of Theodoric, they had something that many didn't, a fleet. The question you may be asking yourself is, who was Cassiodorus actually writing to? Was he just making loads of copies for each Venetian, getting someone to stick letters up around the city in the hope that someone would answer eventually? Did he have the amazing crows of Game of Thrones with their overnight fail-proof communication services? No, he was writing to the tribuni, the tribunes, locally elected officials, an imitation of the Roman tribunes. It is important to specify here that there were not a few tribunes that were elected for all of the area, but the inhabitants of the different areas inside and around the lagoon would elect tribunes. Indeed, it may be worth taking a moment to understand the area we are talking about. Now, when I was listening to Talking History, the Italian Unification by the Ashwell brothers, they were always doing this mental map business, and I found it really helpful and clear, although I did already know what they were talking about. 
Anyway, prepare to be totally confused. If you really don't care, hum to yourself. Let me start you off. Okay, you go on. So, imagine Italy as this big, long, thin boot being pulled back to the right to give the island of Sicily a swift kick. The northern part looks like a giant piece of broccoli stuck in the boot, which is the alpine area. Now, on the top right, where the country starts to thin out, or where the broccoli becomes the boot, there is the Venetian lagoon in a sort of bow shape, with the middle bending to the left. The lagoon is protected from the sea by a series of strips of land. The peninsula starting with the Lido of Jesolo in the north and going down to Punta Sabioni. Then, what is known as the Lido, another strip, and after that, a strip which is the area of Malamocco, and then to the southern area with the peninsula of Chioggia. The earliest known capital of the area, the seat of more or less central power, seems to have been Eraclea on the mainland to the north-east of the lagoon. Okay, you can stop humming to yourself now. Don't think for a moment that all of the people here were living in peace and harmony and prosperity. Not at all. They were constantly at each other, with violence always just an argument away over the territory, fishing rights and so on. Let's get back now to our story. After the death of King Theodoric of the Ostrogoths, the Byzantines invaded Italy, starting the Gothic War, which brought more refugees from the mainland, hit not only by war, but also famine and pestilence. In the end, the Gothic kingdom fell to the Eastern Roman Empire. The inhabitants of the lagoon and coastal areas were not bothered by this change of management and were quite happy to deal with the Byzantines who were so far away they were bound to leave them more or less in peace. Indeed, it is with the Byzantine representative in Italy, Longinus, that we see the first agreement between Venice and Byzantium, in which the latter Venice were granted commercial rights all over the empire. The very important element is that the treaty contained no formal request for loyalty on the part of the Venetians, almost as if the agreement had been made between entities on the same level, although the Byzantines did see the Venetian area as their province. The arrival of the Lombard invasion in 568 brought another wave of refugees towards the lagoon. This wave, however, was a little bit different. Up until that point, the people fleeing invasions and seeking refuge in the area were there for temporary protection, most of them, and they would then go back to their homes. With the Lombards, who arrived not only with an army, but also with their families, no one was under any illusion that things were temporary. Those fleeing the Lombards came led by their bishops, and they came to stay. Things were getting a bit crowded, and it may have been for this reason that a more centralised administrative figure was needed. 
They needed a leader, a commander. The Romans had called theirs dux. The word had also been used by the Lombards and ended up becoming duca, duke. For the Venetians, the word became doge, d-o-g-e, usually pronounced in English as doge. We are not exactly 100% sure who the first doge was. One possible candidate is Paulicio Anafesto, starting in 697. There is a lot of debate as to his existence, and some say he was confused with the Exarch at the time, Paolo, the Exarch being the ruler of the Byzantine holdings in Italy. The second is also up for debate, Marcello Tegaliano. Are you taking note of these names? They will be on the podcast test. Actually, no, just go ahead and forget them, I will. By the third Dodger, however, we can be a bit more certain. Indeed, the third was Orso, who can with some degree of certainty be considered the first Dodger elected by the Venetians and not by the central Byzantine power. Also because the Venetians were really annoyed at the Byzantine Empire in that moment, and in particular Emperor Leo III over the iconoclast issue. Basically, Leo III had a bee in his bonnet about holy images depicting Jesus and the Holy Family and the saints and that, and the widespread commerce that had sprung up, particularly in the Orient, of these images. The emperor sought to stamp out this practice, and the Italians were not pleased at all, the Italians being the inhabitants of the Italian peninsula at the time, whatever you want to call them. They were unhappy to the point of rebellion. And that is when Doge Orso was elected in 727. He is of particular note due to his name, which means bear. So, the first elected Doge of Venice was a bear. Now isn't that a fun fact? Next time you're at a cocktail party, you could try it as a pickup line for a handsome young man or a yavi young lady. Hey there, I haven't seen you around here before. By the way, do you know that the first Dodger elected by the Venetian Republic in the early 8th century was a bear? You'll be married within the year. In the end, Orso proved to be of the more cuddly type of bear and managed to patch things up with the Byzantines, who thought he was so cool they gave him the name of Hippatos. Unfortunately, the poor bear was assassinated in factional fighting in 737, and for the following five years they gave up on the idea of a dodger and have five successive magister militum, magister militi, if you want to do the plural. But then, in 742, they decided they liked the idea of the dodger and elected the son of Orso, Diodato or Teodato, and from then on, until 1797, over a thousand years later, it was Dodges all the way. Sticking with Teodato, nobody was fooling themselves that the newfound good relations with Byzantium, set up by the father cuddly bear, were a form of submission. Indeed, Teodato Orso decided to move the capital of Venice from Eraclea 
on the land to the northeast of the lagoon, to Malamocco, on one of the long strips of land to the southeast of what we know as Venice today, and south of the strip that is the Lido. The capital was now even further away from the reach of invading armies who would have to either have a fleet or build a bridge. This move was made without consulting Constantinople or the Exarch in Ravenna. Speaking of which, we know that the Exarchate fell in 751 to the Lombards, who had ruled much of Italy for almost two centuries now. However, this also accelerated the downfall of the Lombards themselves because soon the Franks came in aid of the papacy and took over. Also this didn't bother the Venetians in their lagoon too much, but it did present them with a new scenario to deal with. Basically, they were sandwiched between two great empires, the Holy Roman Empire of the Carolingians and the Eastern Roman Empire of the Byzantines. This created two factions in the area, one in favour of one empire and the other in favour of the other empire. Meanwhile, the Dodgers were being deposed left, right and centre until a little stability came with Maurizio Galbaio in 764 who ruled for 33 years. With Galbaio we see an attempt at something that the Venetians had been and would later continue to be highly allergic to, i.e. hereditary rule. Indeed, it was Maurizio's son, Giovanni, who took over as Doge in 797. The fact that he was able to do this was a sign that the Venetians were tired of factional violence and deposing Doges. It did not last. Giovanni was deposed in 804 by the Antenoreo, a group of three pro-Frankish co-doges who made an alliance with the Franks in 805. In 810, the doges called the son of Charlemagne Pepin to the lagoon. When Pepin arrived, however, he didn't quite find what he had expected. Indeed, the Venetians had not been happy at all with the invitation and had sent the doges packing and in their place, had rallied around another animal, Agnello, meaning lamb. Yet Agnello Partecipatio was no little lamb. He now prepared to resist the Franks. As Pepin made his way along the strips of land on the outer part of the lagoon and threatened Malamocco, where the new capital had been placed, Agnello gathered his people, sending those who were not fit for fighting further into the centre of the lagoon, to the Riva Alta, Rialto, and preparing for battle. Just over a century after having elected their first doges, the people of the Venezia, the settlements in and around the lagoon, were facing a threat to their existence. This loosely grouped, often litigious and violent collection of villages would have to band together and truly become the Venetians. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. 
I'd like in particular to thank some of my Patreon supporters, starting with the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Silane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Ignacio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Roberta, Shelby, Vincent and Stephen, and the Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri top level, Sen, Paolo and Reactionary Venetian. Also, welcome to the new supporters, Greg, Rasmus, and shooting straight up to the top level, Lisa K. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, the list is a bit shorter than usual because you are all so wonderful. It's getting quite long, but don't worry, lower level patrons. I haven't forgotten you at all, and you'll still be getting regular shout-outs. Thank you very much to everyone. Thanks very much to Hudson LaLuna and Deborah Marie for your lovely reviews on Patreon and all of those who have gotten in touch on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter and you can consult timelines and maps and some of the tools you may need to help navigate our country's complicated history. Until next time, thank you very much to everyone for listening, and arrivederci. Sentire Media Hey podcast producers and show hosts, do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.